welcome to the All Japan Women's Destiny podcast. I'm your host, JD. Welcome to another episode as we go through the history of All Japan Women's Professional Wrestling through the classics episodes that you can find uh, on various places of the internet. I vastly encourage to follow along and learn and enjoy the history of this just awesome women's wrestling promotion of the past. This is a spin-off in conjunction with the Red Leaf Retrocast. That is the proper episode where these come from. We hope you enjoy our audio and our uh, discussions over the various wrestlers and the matches in which we go through the ages. If you like what you hear and you want more content, please consider checking out the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash redleafretrocast, all one word, where we also cover LLPW, various other uh, women's wrestling promotions of the past, and the project that the whole reason it exists is the Joshi 2010's journey, where we go through coming out of the dark ages of Joshi professional wrestling and really learning and having fun with wrestlers that we're very familiar with to this day to ones that we may have missed out on. I hope you enjoy the audio you're about to hear covering AJW. And if you want more, please, again, consider signing up to the Patreon and leaving us reviews over at iTunes, Spotify, and the like, all your favorite podcasting outlets in which you listen to AJW and the Redley Fletcher cast. Enjoy. Welcome. This is the Old Japan Women's Destiny podcast episode. It's the section of the retro wrestling that I love talking about. It's time for Dream Rush Part 2. So I left a lot of my thoughts out of Dream Rush Part 1 because I wanted to save a lot of it for this episode because it has the very epic... Uh, crossover match between JWP and AJW. It's the Classics episode number 66. Hopefully you can still find this on Purser Dream, and maybe even eventually IWTV will pump out this show uh, since they have acquired the rights to publish All Japan Women over there. But, I mean, this show you can find uh, on YouTube, Daily Motion, a whole number of sites. And Dream Rush, in general, is a very historical show for All Japan women, uh, specifically, and women's wrestling altogether. Because it really kick-started the major crossover events and the major rivalries between promotions. And funny enough, Mayumi Ozaki and Kansai and Shinobu Kandori were kind of at the forefront of it all. Like, those three, outside of AJW names, uh, specifically. On my LLPW reviews on the Patreon, uh, I'm nearing the end of 93, 
And that's where where we see LLPW kind of really come into play for a lot of those shows. Uh, it wasn't until uh, January 93 and later 92 and as you went through 1993 where LLPW finally kind of found their footing and uh, they tried to make a few more stars along the way because it wasn't until about the summer of 93 where LLPW got their first big show and that's where FMW came in and uh, etc. So Dream Rush 92 uh, which why the other reasons why it's important is also because it was the changing of the guard from Bolnacano. They're fi- they're finally passing the torch along. They're completing a, a long storyline, which I went over into the previous episode. But the the big moment truly became noticeable at the end of the show. And uh, some thoughts I want to get out out of the way right right now is this is the biggest show since the Crush Gals from AJW. And it's been a long journey since 89 to get back to this point where they can get 3,000 plus into arena, 4,000, 5,000, as we saw here in Kawasaki. The Crush Gals was an enigmatic force in women's wrestling and wrestling in general. And Kay and I spoke a lot about that changing audience. And a lot of that audience that used to be teenage women uh, left with the Crush Gals. And a lot you saw a similar exodus of fans after uh, Beauty Pair kind of went. Uh, Maki Ueda, uh, Mahafumiaki, Jackie Sato and company. Like, they had their fans and they left. And throughout AJW's history, they had that volatile female fan base and what's interesting is uh there's a book uh fumi saito wrote uh and he talks about frequently how they weren't really wrestling fans watching ajw in the 80s at least the majority of them so when they had these number of exodus they had to recreate kind of the pop star in the group, and they they hit twice with Beauty Pair and Crush Gals. While for the wrestling fans, it was it was people like the Jumping Bomb Angels, uh, the, the Devil Masami, Jaguar Yakota era that kind of got them into it. Which I did more research on and kind of my own speculative speculative opinions and 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 the like. Uh, you can't always forget that throughout AJW's history, they still always wanted to try to make the pop star, which is their version of breaking into the mainstream, especially in Japan. The idol, the idolistic uh, allure of of wrestling. Uh, you even see that in uh, a promotion like TJPW with uh, Takagi and the way Coda books is. There's always there's always this objective for them to try to get more into this idol culture uh, in Japan over the wrestling culture because the idol culture is bigger and the wrestling can be a part of that as long as you uh, don't forget about that because wrestling fans are willing to 
it's it's it, it, you see it in WWE as well, where they, they, there's always this need and want to break into a much higher fandom. Yet, because it's so difficult, it's almost it's almost at the detriment of your wrestling promotion and what the wrestling is. So the point to all this is they still AJW still had Devil Masami singing. They still had Yumiko Hota singing. They 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 still had these segments and they're still pumping out two, three hundred shows a year, house shows a year, which is wild. And what happened in nineteen eighty-nine uh through through to this point ninety two at the end of ninety two was because they couldn't get back into that idolistic mainstream that the way what Bolnaka, what this group was able to accomplish in getting wrestling fans into the promotion uh, took a while. I mean, we're talking you know three, arguably four years to the point. Uh, you can throw a little bit of '88 in there, but there was there was still those uh, fans for the Crush Gals. But you had this group that came forward. Yet Bolnacano at the helm, whom wrestled very much a hybrid of Dump Matsumoto and more like I guess a guy would be would be a way to put it. She she didn't wrestle like the jumping bomb angels. She didn't throw a million drop kicks. She had her couple high spots, sure, but she Bolnakano wrestled much closer to a dump Matsumoto and I guess Shinya Hashimoto that rather than a Chigusa Nagayo kind of taken a part of this UWF style, which was which was uh, booming at the time. You had so you had Bolnakano, Ajakong, Akira Hokuto, and I'll throw Bison Kimura in there because she was very much in that group and part of the movement of this new era. Jungle Jack was a very important team uh, in hindsight, and uh, unfortunately, Bison Kimura retired on this show. That's what we went over in uh, part one. <laughs> so. Whom isn't mentioned is on the other side of the spectrum, which was Manami Toyota and Kyoko Inoue. And those two wrestlers were all about innovation. Uh, they were because they didn't wrestle like guys either. They weren't influenced by them. Sure, they, they ended up watching tapes and taking ideas, but they weren't fans of wrestling prior. They were fans of like the Chigusa Nagayo group, we'll call it. Uh, much like Bolnakano and Akira Hokuto were fans of uh, different different things. So, and I've mentioned Akira Hokuto reminds me a lot of Liger and his movements and trying to innovate. Uh, they're very much kind of parallels of each other in a lot of ways and impacted wrestling uh, sort of equally on a lot of fronts. They, they really broke out into the mainstream in their their own ways. And so it's very interesting to break apart what Bolnacano and this group was able to accomplish was getting wrestling fans to these shows. And when you bring in outside promotions and trying to make uh, the whole scheme of the uh, scene stronger 
especially with the split of JWP into LLPW and JWP, that helps those groups out as well. And I've spoken about that on my LLPW reviews in the Patreon, Redley Frederick cast. Patreon, that information and videos weren't as accessible, although VHS also took off and that led to a lot of tape trading. Uh, so there is that sense of accessibility, but really when you think about how much uh, that travels, if you wanted to see the show before, you know, six months later, you had to go to the shows. And if you wanted to see a Dynamite Kansai, you might see her first at an AJW show and you go, oh, now I need to go to their shows if I don't want to, to wait six more months for a tape to come out. Unlike today, where it's like, okay, if I don't go to the show, I can just see it on demand that night, the next day, no matter what promotion it is. The concept of supply and demand very much applies. So wrestling fans came to see these shows, not the idol fans. Something that I think doesn't get uh, talked about quite a lot. And... From a wrestling perspective, seeing different styles in the ring and seeing different people trained by different people uh, is also very interesting. So, for example, we have uh, we have Kandori in the crowd on this show, and Hokuto talks talks uh, talks to her. And Kandori is very much a judoka who came and kind of learned her own way of wrestling. And her own style. She wasn't really taught by anybody. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Kansai, who was uh, denied AJW, and she w- she ended up getting most training from Jackie Sato. Same with same way with Ozaki. And we'll get into Ozaki specifically because she doesn't wrestle anything like uh, these women on the show. So Jackie Jackie Sato trained people. You had Kendori. You had Rumi Kazuma training people to be, and I've spoken about that on my LOPW reviews, where Kandori and company uh, got the LOPW wrestlers uh, into more shoot fighting techniques, uh, kickboxing and the like, and it very much shows in, in their game. They they wrestle different. Uh, the FMW chicks on this show, uh, Shark and Metamari, they're trained by Onita, and they very much wrestle that early that late 80s early 90s like new japan style it, it, it to put a uh, just a label on it they 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 wrestle slow and they go to the mat a lot and uh, there's a uh, there's a funny thing about that match but uh like these are all things to talk about more than kind of the just the the standard tags so let's get into dream rush part 2 uh much of the matches i i discussed in part 1 the passing of the torch and the Lectable Nakano, what I thought about that match, and what Aja Kong is going to bring uh, to the future. Uh, we start with LCO, Mita and Shimoda defeating Chikako Hasegawa and Miori Kamiya. It went almost 11 minutes. Not much to say about it. Uh, LCO wins, and uh, you definitely see Etsuko Mita has absolutely taken on the role and style of Bison Kimura. She's thrown overhead chops. She's uh, got the the paint on. Uh, she's she's big. She's she's by big I mean tall and brooding. Uh, she's not as jacked and formed out as Bison Kimura, but I think you get the point. 
that follows with uh, r- two random tag league matches uh, that is on on this show. It's uh, Suzuka Minami and Yumiko Hota, so kind of Marine Wolves slash Fire Jets team uh, coming together. They're taking on Takako Inoue and Terry Powers. My God, this went 17 minutes and it felt every bit of it. When Terry Powers was not in the match, it was quite good. Uh, and then when she got in the match, there was she had her moments, some clotheslines, some big power moves. Uh, the skinning the cat, Shawn Michaels thing got a big pop. I love the finish where she tries to skin the cat a third time in a row, and she finally knocked off. <laughs> and that's when they go to the finish. Really funny stuff. But uh, Suzuka Minami and Yumiko Hota have really kind of solidified themselves in their respective roles. And I'll keep referencing this. What? When 1993 starts and Suzuka Minami hits the scene, she's one of the big AJW, big, quote unquote, AJW wrestlers that frequently goes to LLPW, for example. And she's kind of the big crossover star, uh, invader, that that goes to a lot of them. Uh, She's less needed in to be pushed in AJW, but she can come across as a bigger star as she visits the other promotion. So the second de- de- tag league match was uh, the newly formed Jungle Jack tag team duo, Debbie Malenko and Saki Hasegawa. And unfortunately, at this point, uh, uh, Mariko Yoshida kind of messed up her neck and shoulder real bad, and she's going to be out a while. So that happened at the end of the Grand Prix. Uh, I think it was um, a couple shows after the Grand Prix ended that now she's out, unfortunately. So they got Kimura retiring, and Yoshida is essentially gone for the next, I think it's like a year and a half, two years. So she's out. Uh, so they take so these two take on the FMW women of... Uh, Shark Suchia and Yoshika Metamari, I believe that's Crusher. And they go 1545. And the DVD that you can you can watch uh, the full matches off of show that uh I forget who had who had what injury. Uh I believe I believe Shark had the injured uh thigh and hamstring, and Metamari had the injured shoulder, in which in the interview, which had full subtitles, which was great. Uh, very standard interviews for the most part, except this one stood out and the Akira Hokuto stuff. Metamari claims that her shoulder and her collarbone are broken, and it feels like uh, her her bone is melting inside her body. But they will fight on. So when you when you go to uh, uh, Figure Four online uh, to the Observer at the time. And you you read what happened after the event. Uh, the next day after Dream Rush Two, FMW ran a show, and funny enough, they sent Debbie Malenko and Saki Hasegawa to the FMW show. Uh, what FMW and you bet your ass this was an Onita move. He probably told them that AJW that is that Shark and Crusher are injured and can't work and they weren't going to work this show prior unless AJW would send a couple talents their way in return and uh, throw them a bone as much it's like okay we'll we'll get them to work but throw us a bone get two people to, to wrestle on our show tomorrow and AJW's like alright come on fine uh, 
we'll, we'll comply. So they work this really boring, slow plotting match, very much like an early New Japan on the mat style match. It's really boring, real terrible. Uh, the crowd's quiet, and Jungle Jack wins, Debbie Moliko and Hasegawa win. No problem. Where the story gets fun is the very next day when Malenko and Hasegawa show up, all of a sudden, their injuries are their injuries are totally fine. <laughs> what a coincidence. Oh, man, what a miracle. It must be because they worked this match so safe and uh, so smart that they, they didn't aggravate their injury. And, hey, collarbone issue? You know what? Slept on it wrong. My bad. I was misdiagnosed. It is, it is 1992, after all. Technology, crazy, right? So, the final two matches, this is great. It's Kyoko Inoue defending the All-Pacific title against Akira Hokuto. This was absolutely incredible. Uh, so, they do, they do the pre-match promos, they, 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 they hype up the match a little bit, and for, how long did this match go? For this match uh, was 22 minutes long. And yes, uh, I have noticed something that I don't like with Kyoko in a way matches is she's very much married to this idea of wacky bow and arrow type lock. Really reminds me of Ultimo Dragon in a lot of ways, where it's that technical aspect of Lucha Libre and you do kind of fancy holds, we'll call them those bow and arrow locks, as I spoke of. And trying to maneuver into other locks as that's the entertainment. And then when you get out of them, then you'll do some uh, rope walking, some springboards, some run up the ropes to her elbow, for example. And she has her few power moves. That's the Kyoko in a way style. And I noticed a lot of that has has uh, upticked over the last you know, eight, nine months with Kyoko in a way in 1992. And a lot of that coincides to her coming back from that big excursion from Mexico. Uh, it was her, y- Yamada developed more striking. Even though she was already that, she she also has more technical aspect to her game. So they clearly worked on that aspect when they were on, in Mexico. And Akira Hokuto came back with a new character. Uh, that's what she did. Uh, that was a little bit after them. Um, so... Where this match gets really good is the last like seven to eight minute stretch where Hokuto's just being the they're doing Germans. Kyoko does a does her giant swing. Hokuto's selling a ton for Kyoko being uh, 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 rolling cradles and comebacks. Uh, let's see what what else the crowd fluctuated in the match between they pop for the big moves and when they were in the stretches it felt like it felt like they were respecting it in a way there was a light clapping it didn't come across like they didn't like the match because they whenever they shot up and would fly back with a with a big elbow or another german from kyoko the crowd would explode. So they were clearly into the match and just waiting. Uh, so 
the crowd is very much into babyface Kira Hokuto. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Kyoko Inoue. They're very much into her, but Akira Hokuto is clearly the bigger star with the bigger story. Because she's got the LCO group. She's got the personality. And that's where Hokuto starts doing her big senton planches. Uh, the crowd's, like, screaming for her. And there's a big slingshot uh, backsplash that gets a drop kick. So, if you aren't familiar, it's Kyoko Inoue's uh, run up into a into a splash, and Akira Hokuto's been doing this in a lot of her matches, where her reversal is she just sticks her legs straight up in the air, and she just cuts you in half <laughs> while, as you land as you land square on her feet. It's really wild, and Akira Hokuto now ends her matches with that, and then goes, "All right." Since I've broken you in half, I'm going to hit you with a Northern Lights bomb right on your fucking head. And uh, that's what she does. It's phenomenal. I really enjoyed this match. It's definitely up there for one of my favorite matches of 92. And this is better than the Bulnikano Aja Kong match. Uh, to me, anyways. Um, this is definitely kind of four-star plus territory. And where it gets even better is these last three matches. It's this one. It's the Nakano Kong and then the main event tag with against JWP is Hokuto just has this innate ability to finish matches not flat, which is something I notice a lot of women in Joshi do uh, today is take a lot of structure that Hokuto did uh, to end matches. You see it in Utami. It, it, I've seen I've seen modern stardom, for example, compared to kind of the New Japan style. But when you when I personally, as I watch more of these AJW matches in context, and as I'm watching modern stardom, it's really Akira Hokuto. And Aja Kong, that I see more parallels to than modern New Japan. I think that's just a modern style in general across wrestling. And how? Because okay, so here's here's a, here's another example. I watch a lot of Western Joshi, as I call it, women's wrestling outside Japan, and they all are taught by men. They wrestle other green women, and they wrestle men. So they all wrestle like them. Okay? So how do they finish matches on the indies? Well, they mostly come across as flat. They mostly end off of a TV-style ending where it's just a counter and then they hit a move and it's over. It it never builds to really anything. And, and meanwhile, while you watch a Joshi match, depending on the promotion, you can really tell where they took things from. So like Marvelous is a lot of roll-ups and well, it's taught by Chigusa Nagayo and to an extent Takumi Aroha. Uh, Wave has a lot of these big boots because it's Yumi Oka and Gami and a little bit of technical game. Like you, you, you see what the promotion kind of stems from while modern stardom, they kind of teach each other and they have various other people from like Milano collection 
uh, teaching other things from the Dragon Gate style. And when you watch, where I was going with this is when you watch Julia specifically, so much of her game is about hitting hard and dumping people and doing wacky shit just like Akira Hokuto. And you know, I, w- I would love an interview that would just ask her, how much Akira Hokuto do you watch? Because <laughs> this match really reminded me of a modern day... You know what? I'll make a wacky comparison here. This Akira Hokuto-Kyoko Inoue match from Dream Rush was the blueprint for that Shuri-Julia match at uh, World Climax. Like I just saw so much in comparison, especially on watching this. And uh, this was the first time I've ever watched this match. So that was something to think about. So yes, good night, Northern Lights Bomb, 22 minutes, 17 seconds. Akira Hokuto wins the white belt, which would be uh, her biggest title that that she'd win. I believe she holds this for quite a long time. And... She cuts a promo, and who is ringside but the crew of Shinobu Kandori, Rumi Kazuma, and uh, Harley Saito. You don't even notice Harley Saito until the th- until you see the group walk to the ring, and Saito actually gets a mic, and she says something or another at, uh, like, calm down, Hokuto, you seem emotional situation, but the faces of Kandori and Kazumas especially are just like, we're just sitting here chilling. We're just watching. And Hokuto just goes, Hey, Kandori, I heard you were talking shit about AJW. <laughs> Once you get in the fucking ring, <laughs> it's pretty wild. And so they walk to the ring. They're, they look like they're going to do something, but then they walk away. So it's, it's all just a setup. It's very, it's very well done. It's it plants the seeds that that these two promotions are going to clash and there's going to be things in the future. Very great. And of course, they go. The video goes to the backstage and uh, they're cutting post-match promos. And the the interviewer, he, he was great all night. Like whenever someone loses, he just goes, man, got your ass kicked, basically. It's <laughs> great. Uh, so he asked Hokuto like straight up. Hey, what's the deal with uh, Kandori? And. Hokuto just goes, I don't want to talk about Ada, that asshole. I want to talk about my title. But f- sooner or later, we're probably going to meet, and I'm going to kick their ass. Hokuto, great promo, great presence, very quick-witted, uh, especially with her verbiage. Uh, she's She just stands out as someone so different, and so uh, she's an enigma. She really is. And I spoke about Hokuto's like 1990 and 91. And how her ring game was excellent. She was putting on match of the year contenders, you know, two or three a year. Uh, she was one of the best in the scene, uh, but she hadn't had the character yet. That's what was missing. While the Bulnacano, while Bulnacano had the character in the game, and she was at she was the champion. Hokuto was matching her in ring and better at times, but was still missing that that edge. And it wasn't. It's not until here in '92 where she's fi- she finally has it, and it's clear as day at the end of this match that this is the Hiro Hokuto that everyone remembers. It's this version. We're finally there, and that takes us into our main event, 
which is the 3WA tag title match, best two out of three falls. It is Minami Toyota and Toshio Yamada. 1996 Team Gold combo, according to some sites. <laughs> Taking on Dynamite Kansai and Mayumi Ozaki of JWP. So, I mentioned how they're both trained differently. Uh, Kansai was denied AJW. Ozaki couldn't work for AJW because of the uh, the size minimum. Because when you have tons of applicants, you have to turn people away and increase rule set. And one of the rules, uh, at least AJW, was you had to be over, I think it was 5'7". So, Ozaki's too small. And here in this match... The three falls went accordingly at 14 and a half minutes, a very quick turnaround, 16 and a half minutes, and then the final stretch went 40 and a half minutes. So the entire first kind of 14 minutes of this match was establishment of equality. And instead of breaking down move by move, I just I really want to focus on and just quickly talk about how much these four people molded together and, w- and was able to structure themselves out in this two out of three fall match that made you more invested in the final 25 minutes of the match. So it was, even though it was two out of three falls, it really felt like a one fall match based on its structure. And I, I can't honestly say that a lot of, uh, about a lot of two out of three falls matches. Uh, because you're always waiting for the two falls first, and you kind of get that out of the way. You can watch a million matches out of Mexico where the first two falls come in like quick succession, you know, first few minutes of the match sometimes, and then it's finally a third fall match. You go, well, why don't you just say one fall and you just do that the whole time? Uh, this one didn't feel like that. It really felt like when Kansai pinned Toyota, that it was a big deal. That Kansai was here, and she is as good as them. And her power game doesn't match the style that these fans are used to, and honestly, what I'm used to. Because I'm used to seeing Bolnakano and Aja Kong kind of throw lariats and still work a million miles an hour. Well, Kansai and Ozaki don't work that way. Uh, so, when it was the AJW team in control, they worked in AJW style. They went a million miles an hour. Toyota uh, even went as far in the pre-match promo saying she's going to drop kick their asses. <laughs> and that's what she tried to do. While Kansai and Ozaki more or less played a standard tag format where it was isolation. And I think a lot of that has to do with Ozaki and her character and what she was doing. And the funny thing about Ozaki in this match is, look, she's she's very skinny, she's small, and she's pretty. And the AJW fans wanted so bad to cheer her because they immediately saw her as the underdog babyface. However, Ozaki's a heel. And any time in this match that they... She heard them start to cheer for them. She would rip Yamato or Toyota to the outside, throw them against the guardrail, get a weapon. She'd do uh, little things in the match uh, throughout the entire time, such as stomping on their hands, uh, getting in the ring, and getting a cheap shot in as the ref turned around, 
or if they're trying to grab the rope, she'd step on their hands at the ropes or pull the pull the rope in. Uh, there's one great moment where I believe it's shortly after that th- that second fall, around the 18 minute mark. I hope I have my timestamp right, but uh, Kansai has Yamada in. I think it was a Boston Crab. And she's getting to the ropes and she's near the corner of Ozaki. And Ozaki just gets in the ring and stands in her way. Just blocking getting to the ropes. And it works so well. The crowd just eviscerately hated it. And it took a long time for them to finally get back into cheering for Ozaki because as soon as she gets in the ring, with Toyota and Yamada, they just beat the hell out of her because uh, she's a chicken shit heel. But she, because of her beauty and size, they want to root for this underdog appearance character. Uh, so I have to. This is why Ozaki remains one of my favorite uh, women's wrestlers of all time because she works differently, she acts differently. And she just is different than everyone else in the scene. And she came across as a big star, not really to herself, but she was she was a star to put other people over her, which is very difficult to do. Uh, and I, I can't I can't really think of a whole lot of people that uh, men and women who are capable of doing what she what she did. And her popularity is, of course, in her in her appearance and the fact that she's a, a great wrestler in herself, uh, it's the heel work that really is super interesting with her. And that's what attracts me to her and her wrestling, even to this day. Like, I piss and shit on Oz Academy, especially in the modern era and booking. But if there's one thing that she knows how to do, it's how to get uh, a crowd to both hate her and gasp for her. Uh, very rare. Very rare. And yeah, Kansai gets the first fall, and then Yamada gets the fall over Kansai, and it's it's not over the most definitive terms. And so what's happening here is, so Yamada has already lost like a lot of big defeats lately. And I totally understand the structure is, hey, we don't want to pin her specifically in this match. While lately... Uh, Toyota won, uh, has won a lot of big matches. She's also been kind of on a losing streak. So her losing in the canon of AJW that first fall makes sense. And Yamada coming back as a redemption of getting to the point where... Because uh, she lost that massive hair match. And uh, another point of the interviewer, he goes, your hair's looking pretty cool these days. And she's like, ah, she's all embarrassed. As you know, that's been happening to her a lot lately. Uh, and the whole ending sequence between the tag moves and coming in and out and the near falls, it's really good. It's an excellent 40-minute match. Um, yes, I think it's the best match on the show, but I, I, I truly don't think it's uh, the Hokuto Inoue match is that far behind, uh, at least in a grand spectrum. Um, I mean, they're two, three out of three top-end recommended matches. You must watch them. And then, of course, the bull aja match is very historical in the sense but it it is funny how this tag match took precedent over an entire uh generation passing the torch 
in Bolnacano to Aja Kong. And what is to come for 93? You just would you you just would think by structurally in how to make a card that uh, that match would be the main event, but in terms of the time and how much buzz everything was getting in magazines and the coverage it was getting, the the this JWP crossover match was certainly bigger in the media, and so it had to be the main event. That's where I think a lot of the people came to see while while the Nakano Aja match has happened multiple multiple times over the course of a few years. Uh, so I, I I get it I get it, and that does it for AJW. I'm really looking forward to what happens now uh, later in post Dream Rush because even though I've seen a lot of scattered matches here or there, the context and the timeline I'm not too familiar with. Uh, it's just the more I read, the more I listen to, whether it's a podcast and, and books by Fumi Saito and reading The Observer and just talking to people more knowledgeable than me uh, on the subject. And then I can make my my own theories, opinions. Uh, this is very exciting. We're, we're finally in that next era of women's wrestling. And I'm excited. and I hope you are, too. <laughs>